Hi, ladies and gentlemen. If you've already listened to part one, then you'll know that I've already said this. But we had a couple of little production issues with this episode that we wanted to give you a little heads up on. So what happened is that we've gone back and recorded a few little bits that had been chopped off and weren't quite brought across from the original recording. And then beyond that, there was an issue as well with Craig's microphone. Now, the actual content of what he's saying is still there and it still works. However, the pitch was being distorted and moving a lot lower, making Craig sound a little bit like Barry White in parts. So please don't let that bother you too much and enjoy the episode. We have sorted out a backup, which is hopefully going to help us with the future episodes. Enjoy. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back. This is part two of the Vinyl Conflict Grunge episode. If you've not yet listened to part one, please go back and listen to it, where we review and discuss 10 by Pearl Jam. In this part, we're going to be comparing and contrasting that album to Nirvana's second album, Nevermind. And here to tell you a little bit more about the background of Nevermind is Jamie. All right, guys. So we're going to talk about Nevermind, which was Nirvana's second album. And it was released September 24th, 1991. Quite an interesting day in music history because there was four bangers released on that very day. It was Nevermind by Nirvana, Bad Motorfinger by Soundgarden, Low End Theory by Tribe Called Quest and Blood Sugar Sex Magic by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Wow. Quite a day for tunes to come out. Good day. I know, I, part of the research I was like, really? I'll very lightly touch on it here because it's about Nirvana. When you guys had said about doing this 10 by Pearl Jam and Nevermind by Nirvana, and I was like, wonder what these two records will be my favourite. And I was like, ah, my favourite will be Blood Sugar Sex Magic by Red Hot Chili Peppers because it was released at the same time. Perhaps <laughs> <laughs> a hell of a stack of releases on that day. And these three bands, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nirvana and Pearl Jam, played on tour together yep. for a couple of months. Aye, aye. Which would have been one hell of a gig. Aye, that's a show. Red Hot Chili Peppers were headlining and then mm-hmm. Pearl Jam and Nirvana done swaps around about in terms of support. But anyway, we digress. This record spawned four singles. Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is, you know, why everybody's here. It's the biggest single that that band had put out. Come As You Are, Lithium and In Bloom. Pretty much all of them came out the following year with the exception of Smells Like Teen Spirit, which came out just before the LP dropped. It's a trio, which is quite interesting because you don't really see that many trios make it this big, Mm -hmm. which was quite cool. It's something that we'll maybe speak about a wee bit later on in the production section. It was produced by a guy called Butch Vig, who is a drummer, which is quite weird because you don't get a lot of drummer producers. Oh. And it was recorded at Sound City, where they actually made a documentary. Dave Grohl bought the mixing desk for that studio when it closed, and they made a documentary, and it features some bits about Nirvana. Obviously, Dave Grohl played the drums for the band back when he was like 13 years old, <laughs> which is weird because he looks exactly the same. He's just got less tattoos. <laughs> I always look at the sales, no really for anything other than just morbid curiosity, really, but This is considered one of the biggest selling albums of all time, Mm -hmm. which when you see the list of other bands, you know, there's a couple of things in there like Metallica, but for a rock record, this shifted 30 million records. The thing for me, which was really interesting, and I was reading some of the stuff about what happened when it was released, the Pearl Jam's 10 took like a year to sell a million records. Mm -hmm. Nevermind sold out everywhere Mm -hmm. before they had even put together a marketing campaign which shows the power of word of mouth, for one, but also the amount of records this could shift was unbelievable. And I've not experienced anything like that since. Maybe with the exception of Harry Potter books. But this flew off the shelves faster than you went, oh, go and give a tenor, mum, I'm going to go into the shop and I'm going to buy Nevermind on cassette. And by the time you got there, it sold it, which is nuts. Mm -hmm. It sold 2 million records in the UK as well, which is absurd. 
we will have a wee chat about what our favourites are and we'll talk about our least favourites in a wee bit. But we'll start with our favourites from this record. So, Craig, I would like to go to you first, please, if that's all right, for your favourite song on this album. Cool, cool. No, probably going to be much of a surprise. In Bloom is the one that sticks in my head. But also, if you've listened to part one, you'll have heard Daniel talking quite a bit about how Nirvana go for loud to quiet, quiet to loud. The dynamics on this album in general are pretty good. I think this song's the epitome of that. I also think it's Kurt Cobain's best vocal performance on the album. Absolutely rips into that chorus. And I think it's Nirvana getting a wee bit political, which I quite like. Lyrically quite a strong song, quite a critique on what was happening in America at the time. Great music, great guitar sounds, huge, massive stadium-sized guitar sounds, which isn't unusual for a grunge album, but straddles the borderline a wee bit on the more stadium rock, poppy kind of, more mainstream kind of thing. Also the music video, although we tend not to talk too much about music videos on this, but I love the music video for Endloom. It's Kurt Cobain doing what he does best, tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. playing with that whole notion that they were coming this huge super group, this huge mainstream band, and Bloom, that's the one. Sweet. That's the one for you. And what about you, Daniel? What's your favourite tune in this? My favourite song on this, again, probably isn't the best song on the album, but is the one I've got most of a personal connection with. I think it's track five, Territorial Pissings. The reason this is my favourite track is, first of all, Nirvana started out as essentially a hardcore punk band more influenced by Black Flag and stuff along those lines than anything else. And I think that Territorial Pissings is a song that really, really shows that off well. I think from a production point of view, this is going to sound like an insult, but in the spirit of punk, I mean this as a compliment. It sounds like everything was done in the first take. They just went in and smashed it out and that was it and it was done. Especially towards the end of the song where you listen to Kurt's voice just giving out and cracking and falling apart and then same with Dave Grohl pounding away on the drums. Chris Novus Alex just hitting random shit on the bass towards the end of it as well. I first fell in love with this song because there's quite an infamous performance of this on the Jonathan Ross show, one of the first times they played in the UK, or one of the first times they played on TV in the UK, I should say. They were booked to play Lithium, which was the single at the time. However, when they took to the stage, they played Territorial Pissings instead. And I think that was a big inspiration to myself and my own kind of punk rock ethos when I had a band. We actually used to cover Territorial Pissings quite a lot, and we would often play it towards the end of a set. Sometimes it wasn't actually on the set list, but if we got there and we had a really crap, unresponsive crowd who we knew didn't like us anyway, we played Territorial Pissings and just tried to make it a wee joke in ourselves of how many people can we make leave the room when we play this song. (laughs) So I absolutely adore Territorial Pissings. It's like Kurt Cobain's id, just completely unfiltered, unrestricted, and I don't think it tries to be particularly artistic. I think it's just a loud punk rock song, and it's just quite happy to be that without any deeper meaning. Jamie, what was your favourite track? The sentiment of this track is in agreement with you, Daniel. My favourite track on this album is the last track, which is Endless, Nameless. It's not a good song. It's not the best song on the record. But for me, it's my favourite because I personally think that this is the song that the rest of the record wanted to sound like. Mm. It comes thundering at the gate with fantastic drums, ridiculous noise on the guitar, and it does have that dynamic flirtation with quiet loud, quiet loud. But the rawness and the I don't give a fuckery about any of the instruments is just great. I love it. I'm all for really mental sounding shit. I like noise in music, I like the tension that it creates, and I really like this. There's a great closer 
in some versions of the album, it didn't actually even appear. Aye, aye. I had a wee look in some of the forums and stuff. Well, that's kind of me getting away my age. About people going, is this a rare copy of Nevermind? And then somebody's going, it's only rare if you bought it in Mexico and it doesn't have endless nameless on it, actually. <laughs> the other thing that gets me laughing as well is like people are going, see this record that sell 30 million copies? Is this a rare copy? And you're like, no, pal. Aye. It sell 30 million copies. There's no such thing. Aye. So, but I mean, I love how raw and visceral and really honest that that track is. It doesn't try to be Smells Like Teen Spirit. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. It feels like a big fuck you, a Geffen Records, mm-hmm. because they were on Sub Pop before and then they signed with Geffen and it was basically, they stuck this track on the end of it and they were like, right, here's what we really think. I really like it. I go back and listen to that quite a lot just because it's got a ridiculous opening 30 seconds and it's a really raw sounding tune and it's super visceral and I think that that's how they wanted to sound but weren't allowed to sound because they were on a major record label. Interesting. So we've had a wee quick chat about our favourites. We're going to have a wee quick chat about our least favourites if that's cool and we'll just do it in the same order. So Craig, that puts you up first mate if you want to chat about your least favourite track on the record. Cool. So I nearly, nearly said Teen Spirit, which is maybe mere to do with the fact of how many times I've had to teach it to a 14-year-old, <laughs> rather than it actually being a bad song. I'm glad you say that. Every time I hear Come As You Are, I get the fright of my life, because <laughs> I think I'm 10 years younger and I'm teaching some wee Wayne on their first electric how to play it. <laughs> it might do us all some good, as all music tutors of varying lengths of time to talk about the relationship we have with Smells Like Teen Spirit. But my least favourite song on this is Polly, mm. and it's because of how it made me feel listening to it. And I might be totally misreading the lyric here, misreading the whole tone of the thing, but it seems a really sadistic lyric, a really unnecessarily sadistic lyric. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a point he's trying to make that I'm missing, but it feels like Kurt Cobain as a lyricist has just been really self-indulgent in terms of how far can I push this image of this lassie being tortured, essentially. It just made me feel really uncomfortable. As a song, Run About the Lyric, it's fine. When I was listening to this, I was like, oh man, I kind of understand this now. When I first discovered this album like 20 years ago, I was like, yeah, all right. Polly's a good wee tune there. It's a decent wee hook and you can get sucked into it. And the backing vocals on it are really nice. But no, I can't listen to it. And I think for now on, I'll probably skip it. Mm. And what about you, Daniel? What's your thoughts on your least favourite? Craig, while you're on there, I do kind of agree the subject matter of Polly it's one of those songs, a bit like Hey Ya by Outkast, a fine wee tune until you listen to the lyrics and then you start reevaluating your whole life. Doing my research for this sent me down a bit of a rabbit hole and I'm now currently reading Heavier Than Heaven, which is the biography of Kurt Cobain written by Charles R. Cross. And do you know who was a massive fan of the song Polly? Is it going to be a serial killer? It's going to be Jeffrey Dahmer or something, isn't it? No, no, it was written about a serial killer. <laughs> An actual real life one. Yeah. Right, let me have another guess. Right, okay. Margaret Thatcher. No. <laughs> <laughs> the one and only legendary songwriter Bob Dylan. God. Seen Nirvana play once. When he seen them play Polly, he said it was something to the effect of in my head, I want to say that kid's got balls, but I feel like he said that kid's got heart, because I, I can't imagine Bob Dylan saying balls. That kid has heart, yeah. That's what he said, yeah. Aye, and that was in relation to the fact that he felt that it was actually quite a brave move of Kurt Cobain to write something that makes a killer sound almost sympathetic, that trying to understand the perspective of a murderer rather than just kind of condemning them. 
But anyway, my least favourite track, and Jamie, I am so, so sorry to do this to you, <laughs> but my least favourite song on the album was Endless Nameless. Yeah. Sorry, right, mate, that's all right. The weird thing is, everything you said that was why it was your favourite is probably everything why it was my least favourite. <laughs> I love this album overall, but Endless Nameless, I feel, is the one song that I wouldn't pick out to go back and listen to individually. It would never really make its way onto a playlist. I would only ever listen to it as part of this album. And it sounds more like some of the noisier bands that influenced Nirvana, such as the Melvins or even some of the Pixies' heavier stuff. As I say, it's not a bad song. It's pretty much exactly what it should be. It's a noisy closer to a noisy album. And again, I just wouldn't seek it out on its own. And it does make sense, I think, that this was originally a hidden track because I think, to me... Something in the Way is the real closer of the album, yeah. and Endless Nameless is a hidden track. It doesn't sound to me like that was the statement that they wanted to end on. It just sounds like it was a good bit of noise to, as you say, Jamie, kind of fuck with people a little bit, especially when you go and listen to the follow-up album in utero, which is pretty much mostly more along those lines, much, much heavier and much noisier. So it was more, in my opinion, a sign of things to come rather than the perfect closer to that set of songs. It's interesting that you say about it being not the intended closer because the research that I had done had said that the record label wanted something in the way to be the closer and they didn't want Endless Nameless to be on it at all. Uh So they left it off the track listing, but it still made it onto the record. Mm -hmm. And then they brought it back. That's how there's this whole debate about, oh, is this rare? Because it's not on the track listing, but it's there, which is why some people would consider it a hidden track, but it was never intended to be a hidden track. Mm -hmm. But it's quite interesting how that makes people feel that are a fan of this record. I'm not a fan of this record and I picked that song out because to me, that's probably the most genuine statement on the whole album. <clears throat> to come back to my least favourite, Craig, mate, we're two for two tonight. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Write this down, Daniel. Oh, no, we don't need to because we've recorded it in a podcast. <laughs> my least favourite track is Polly. Yeah. Lyrics aside, because you've said everything that needs to be said about that. Polly was recorded, I think, almost a year before the rest of the tracks. And it was the only demo, if you will, that actually survived the cutting room floor and made it to the actual album. And that shows the statement that was made by the lyrics and by the singing and the fact that it's just an acoustic guitar. It's a very self-indulgent statement. Mm. I think that it's a big look at me. For better or worse, I'm no questioning Kurt Cobain's motivations about this big look at me, but I think that that's what it is. And as a counterpoint to that, I would probably say it's the least honest statement on the album because it's no look at Nirvana, because this album would have sucked if it was a solo album. The singing and the lyrics and all that is really held up by the band massively, and we'll talk about this um, in my thoughts on production value, but Polly seems to be really self-indulgent. The previous drummer played the cymbal crashes that are weirdly scattered through the song, and it survived all the way through, and I have a feeling that that was, no, we're keeping it. You know, it has to make it, it has to make the cut, Mm. and it's just stuck in the middle. Mm -hmm. It's just literally right in the middle of the record, and I suppose it kind of fits because it's that whole loud, quiet, loud. In its place, it would be the quiet part of the album if the album was viewed as one piece of work, which we often do. But I just think it's dead self indulgent, and it doesn't quite fit the spirit of the rest of the album. And I skip it when it comes on. I'm just like, oh, right, cool, next. (laughs) And the lyrics are bogging. Kurt Cobain is a deliberately inflammatory person. Yeah. And I think he used that to great success and the band's success. I think, like, he was tongue in cheek, but knowing a nice jabby in the ribs, your favourite uncle, like the party kind of way, he no. was like, a, no, fuck you. I want to get a reaction to this. And I really appreciate that in artists. I think it brings out a lot of the best of their work. 
but I think Polly's just bleh. It's a bit much for me. It's a big look at me, and I don't like it. Mm-hmm. We've done bests. I've done worsts. We'll have a wee quick chat about the production value. If you guys don't mind, I'll lead straight on with some of the stuff I said about Kurt Cobain's really held up by the rest of the band. This is a trio that we had spoken about before, and I think the rest of the guys in the band, Dave Grohl and Chris, is it Novo Selic? Is that how you pronounce that? I, I think, think so, yeah. Right. They really hold up Kurt Cobain. I said before it would have sucked if it was a solo record. Dave Grohl is a fantastic drummer. He overplays a lot in this record and it really needs it because it's a trio. And like I said earlier, it's really difficult to make a trio sound good and on the stage of selling 30 million records. Kurt Cobain is not a great guitar player and he's not a great singer, but it suits that music perfectly, I think. Mm-hmm. And the production values kind of back that up. There's quite a lot of chat about it being too clean, which I kind of agree with. In my research, I found out it was actually the second mix of that album that actually got released. Mm-hmm. The first mix, band didn't like it, and it was Butch Fig that had mixed it, and they said, it sounds too nice, mm-hmm. it sounds too clean. And it was a guy that mixed Slayer albums. It was the record label had said, out of this list of 10 people, ranked from number one to number 10, who's going to be the guy that's going to remix this album? And they deliberately picked the last guy on the list because he was the last guy on the list. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be a guy that mixed Slayer records. And I'm really happy that they did because that album sounds quite clean anyway. Mm -hmm. But imagine how much cleaner it would have sounded if it was mixed clean. Mm -hmm. So that's some of my thoughts on it. I've got my thoughts on production, but what about you guys? What do you think about the production values of Nevermind? I've got quite a lot of thoughts here. Is it cool if I jump in first, Craig? Butch Vig, this was really the album that kind of propelled him into the mainstream because he had previously worked with quite a lot of underground bands and then he went on to work with the Smashing Pumpkins, Garbage, House of Pain, Green Day, Muse and then later managed to reunite with Dave Grohl and produced a Foo Fighters album. If he hadn't done this album, there's a good chance he might have still been doing underground bands now because this was really the first one that was a big album. But I know a lot of Nirvana purists aren't really mad about the production of this album. And some people do think, even with the second mix, that it is still a bit too polished and it strays a bit away from the raw kind of vibe that they had with Bleach. They again managed to capture with In Utero. However, I actually think that as far as kind of punk rock ethos and punk rock ethics go, that some of the stuff that Butch Vig had to do to trick Nirvana with this recording was pretty punk in and of itself. Kurt Cobain didn't want to do any overdubs on his vocals and Butch Vig had to talk him into it by saying, quote, John Lennon did it. By showing him that somebody that he respected did it, that was how he managed to get him to actually do it. Yeah. I was like double tracking the vocals, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. It really emphasises the way that he sings and I think the double tracking was a great choice. Mm-hmm. See, while we're talking about Kurt Cobain's voice actually, it's funny that you mentioned Slayer because there was an argument that I used to have with people all the time, right? So I've always liked simpler, punky, grungy music, whereas a lot of the people that I grew up with playing around love metal. Slayer are, in my opinion, a pretty terrible live band whenever you watch them playing live compared to what they're like on the record. Whereas Nirvana, when they were on their game, sounded pretty much exactly the same as they did on the record. If you disagree with that, go and watch them play in Smells Like Teen Spirit on The Word. I watched that today, and it's amazing how big a live sound they managed to get out of being a trio, and I think that is thanks in part to Kurt Cobain's heavy guitar style and Dave Grohl's insane over-drumming that you mentioned before. Yep. And the final argument that I came to, and 
me and my brother that were talking about this, Nirvana play Nirvana songs better than Slayer play Slayer songs. <laughs> Therefore, are essentially a better live band. Like, you can argue over, oh, but it's harder to play the Slayer song. And it's like, well, they fucking wrote it. Yeah. They should be able to play it. So I do think there is a really great rawness to this. When they bring that into the studio, there are a few little tricks that Butch Vig had to play on Drain You in particular that starts with the clean guitar and then comes into the heavy guitar once the drums pick up as well. Butch Vig lied to Kurt Cobain when he was tracking the guitar. Every time he recorded a take, he would go, oh, I don't know what's wrong with the console. That didn't record. Can you do it again? When in actual fact, what he was doing was layering them up on top of each other so that he had more to work with and could make it sound more full because he knew that if he said, we're going to double track this, that Kurt Cobain would have said no. So he had to kind of trick him into doing it so that he could then play it back to him and go, this is what it sounds like when we double track your guitars. I think Drain You ended up with like five or six different guitars on it. Mm -hmm. And it was the same with his vocals. I think he pulled a few similar tricks to that because, again, he wasn't that keen on doing it. But thankfully, again, he was good enough at playing his own songs that two completely different takes sounded similar enough that they worked as a double track. Just want to throw in another wee story. I've talked quite a lot about Butch Vig because I found a great series on YouTube. I think it's maybe from a bigger documentary, but on YouTube it was kind of broken into a few smaller clips. And there was a great clip. We discussed something in the way, which, in my opinion, is the real closer to this record. So Kurt had been in the studio trying to get a guide's track down for something in the way over and over again, and it just wasn't quite working out. Kurt started this conversation, he took off his headphones, unplugged his guitar, and came through into the control room, and he was like, listen, in there it sounds like shit, this is what I want it to sound like, and he started just playing it and singing along himself, and eventually Butch Vig just cut him off and was like, wait there, and had to run away and grab a couple of microphones and just be like, right, go. Kurt's part in Something on the Way is slightly out of tune, and there's no click track to it, because he was essentially just demoing the song and being recorded live and that's why they said when it came to putting in the bass and drums there were times they had to record it bar by bar because it wasn't in time it was just recorded on a whim so in that aspect i personally disagree with the people who think this sounds too polished because i think it was the right amount of polished it keeps its rawness it sounds like a raw album even though when you look at the level of production that actually went into it it's not really I am a big fan of the production on this album. I understand why some people think it's not as raw as it could have been, but I think it was for the best, and I think it made the songs sound their best. And of course, it was the album that put them into the mainstream, and I don't think it could have done that with lesser production values. Craig, what are your thoughts on the production? I'm not a massive Nirvana fan. I get why people are. They've never really been top of my list in terms of the bands I would listen to. I am, however, a big fan of Bleach, their first album, which is much more DIY sounding, much more raw. Although the singles have been on my radar for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. It's not an album I knew particularly well as an album. In fact, a lot of the tracks I knew as live tracks from The Wish Cat and things like that. Mm -hmm. I was kind of surprised when it was more lush, if that's the word I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. It was slightly more polished than I expected it to be. I don't think it hurts it. In fact, I think it's a really good showcase of what I consider to be the two highlights of the band, Kurt Cobain's voice and Dave Grohl's drumming. Jamie, you mentioned about Kurt Cobain's guitar playing. Not the best guitar player in the world. Did some quite interesting stuff, but no uh, virtuoso by any manner of means. And the bass players playing the bass. <laughs> no harm any bass players listening. It's no Peter Hook, do you know what I mean? He's no then in particularly fancy for what I can hear. He's doing his job. He's being a bass player. Aye. The thing I like about the production on this is it gives the two strongest elements of this band the spotlight. Mm -hmm. Kurt Cobain's voice sounds amazing on it. 
not a guy I would consider a technical singer. There's a lot of moments on this album where his voice gets centre stage and you just know he means it. Mm-hmm. You know it's coming right for his belly button, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And Dave Grohl's working his arse off in the background trying to make these songs sound epic and make them interesting and complement everything that's going on. I'm kind of in your camp, Daniel. Anybody that says this album's overproduced, I don't know what they're expecting. Mm-hmm. Are they expecting Bleach too? Aye. When you actually go back and listen to Bleach, they hadn't really started doing the loud, quiet, loud thing yet. No. That was kind of born from Smells Like Teen Spirit and then bled over into the rest of the tracks in the album. Bleach is fine and it's perfect for what it is, but I think when you start trying to get more dynamic, that's when you actually do need a producer to come in sometimes. When I was talking about Drain You, just hitting the distortion pedal on your guitar does not have the same effect no. of there actually being five guitars there in the mix. It just doesn't. On a live show, it might. On a record, it just doesn't. I think it's produced exactly the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Yep. We kind of spoke about what producers do in, in the last episode, the Pearl Jam one. For me here, it's probably worth expanding on. And for people that don't know, I am not a music producer. None of us really are. We have produced music. I've done quite a bit of that in my time. And I break it into three parts. My responsibilities as a producer would be looking after instrumentation, as in what instruments are played, orchestration, when and where that these instruments are played, and then obviously how that's in the mix. And then arrangement, how the song is put together, you know, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, blah, blah, blah. I think that Butch Vig done quite a good job in making this album sound what it's meant to sound like. It's meant to sound like a trio. Mm -hmm. It actually sounds like a trio. It's hard to pick out some trios, but even if we go more recent with duos, you've got Royal Blood. Mm -hmm. You've got Death Above 1979. You've got White Stripes. You've got the Ting Tings. Aye. These are duos, right? None of them sound like duos. Mm -hmm. They sound like a full band that has two members. Mm -hmm. And that's a bit dishonest. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that that's what it is. This, and I've wrote this in big words and I've put a circle around it, this record sounds like a trio. Mm -hmm. And almost the instruments and the vocals have got level playing field when it comes to the mix, which is a super bold move because it's almost always drums are right in the background, bass is somewhere near the drums, Mm -hmm. and then guitars are prominent and then singing's right up in your face. And I guess that we're all victims of the compression wars of the late 90s and the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Things have to be dead loud for radio, but this album sounds really honest. Aye, there's double tracking of vocals, aye, there's extra guitar bits and bobs, and there's a couple of wee overdubs dotted here and there. But I think that the production value in the mix in particular lets this band be a trio, but it does not make it sound like a dead, empty experience. There's always that risk of things sounding quite empty, which is why the White Stripes and Royal Blood and Death Above 1979 use extra tracking in the studio Mm -hmm. to make it sound fuller. Because if it doesn't sound full, then it would sound shit in comparison to everything else, which sounds like 10 by Pearl Jam, where there's like 15 guitar overdubs and percussion and XYZ. Actually, I like the production value of this. I get why people don't like it, because it doesn't quite sound as heavy as it should. Mm -hmm. It doesn't sound quite as angsty. But I think that they've done a very good job of making it sound honest, which is probably one of my favourite things. And I suppose this is a good bit to go into closing remarks, but about how honest that this album sounds. It's not trying to be fancy. There are no mad guitar effects. There's no choirs. There's no mental keyboards. They didn't fly in Alex Acuna to play some percussion. They sound like a trio. Mm-hmm. It sounds really good for that. Totally. Yeah. Any other remarks then that we want to be bandy about before we end this episode? 
I think it's worth talking a wee bit more about something you kind of started to mention there, Jamie, about the difference between this album and the Pearl Jam thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've written the fucking Gettysburg address about this, by the way. <laughs> no, that's good. I'll let you go first in case you cover any points before I do. <laughs> we mentioned Teen Spirit a wee bit ago, and yes... People of a certain generation are probably a bit jaded on it. Mm-hmm. Like, I that bloody song again. Now it's on MTV again, skip it. I think we just need to take a minute to go, has there ever been a better opener to an album? Dust those cobwebs away how much you've heard that song and how much you know about it. Mm-hmm. But holy shit. Aye. Mm-hmm. It's one of the records that you can almost imagine the steam coming off it when they recorded it. Aye. Mm-hmm. How hot that is, an opener. It's a fucking great opener. Aye. It's one of the best rock songs ever written. I don't think that's up for debate. No, no, absolutely. Did you know that the guitar riff is more than a feeling by Boston, but backwards? <laughs> <laughs> I did not know that. It genuinely actually is. <laughs> I've tried it. It's not quite. It's almost, but it's not quite. No, nah, fits in, mate. It is. It's the same. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got More Than A Feeling by Boston, or Boston by Boston, I believe is the album, if you play it backwards, it is just Smells Like Teen Spirit, mate. Little known fact. <laughs> I didn't know that. They done that at their set at Reading Festival when they played Smells Like Teen Spirit. They actually started by playing More Than A Feeling for a bit to kind of wind up the audience. Oh, they did. I was like, are you telling me that Boston played Smells Like Teen Spirit? (laughs) Are you telling me that Nirvana played (laughs) More Than A Feeling? I would be more surprised that Boston headlined the Reading Festival (laughs) with a fucking one song. Mate, Boston had at least two songs. Name the other one. What's the other one? Eh, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to name Boston's second song. I'm looking it up, actually, like, that's how bad it is. Aye. Because every time, I always think that's the final countdown, but it's not, that's Europe. Oh, so it is. Aye. Aye. Nah, Boston have got one song, mate, you're dead right. I know, I'm always right. Anyway, Aye. the point I was making was I'd like to thank everybody who entered the competition to see who had the best opener. I'd like to thank everybody who lost. Aye. There's no real competition in it. Aye. So it's a shame to me that it's become a bit jaded. Mm-hmm. I certainly don't think there's anything first, middle or last that compares to that tune in terms of its status in popular culture on the other album. Alive, maybe. Probably its closest contender, mm. but even that's a good stretch away. Where it comes down to with these two albums is the production and the length for me. Mm-hmm. As much as I'm much more likely, personally, to go back to the Pearl Jam album, because it's mere my speed and mere my thing, in terms of experiment, a musical entity, the Nirvana album is a bit of a winner. Mm-hmm. Is it okay if I go with my kind of spiel here that I've got? I totally agree with what you were saying there, Craig. Take a deep breath. As I mentioned before, listening to these two albums, especially because the day that I wrote most of my notes, I just sat and listened to both of them back to back and wrote my notes as I was doing it. And listening to them back to back definitely shows that grunge is not a genre of music. Whatever way you want to try and justify that, it's a description of a scene where these bands came from. Pearl Jam, in my opinion, aren't that far away from sounding like a classic American stadium rock band. The Pearl Jam album's kind of like Neil Young and Crazy Horse, but for the 90s. Whereas Nevermind, to me, sounds more like a basement punk rock show overall. But with that being said, I think the thing that connects these albums and one of the overlying themes of the grunge era is the lyrical themes. And both of these albums deal with topics like homelessness, suicide, depression, lost romances as well. 
I listen to a lot of comedy podcasts and a couple of times grunge has come up and I've heard people joke that grunge happened, this kind of miserable, dreary kind of music and lyrical themes is because it always rains in Seattle. I think Seattle has something like 156 days of rain a year. wonder what that's like. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm sure we can all relate to being West of Scotland people. It actually makes a lot of sense, although the people I've heard saying that were most likely saying it in jest. Depression can obviously affect everyone regardless of the location. Grunge isn't talked about that much these days, but there is considered a big four in grunge, and that would be Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Soundgarden. Grunge is described as Seattle sound. Not everyone from all bands is from Seattle, but most of them are from Washington. And I want you just to take a minute just to think about the fact that Kurt Cobain, Lane Staley, and Chris Cornell are all dead. Kurt Cobain and Chris Cornell died by suicide, and Lane Staley died of an accidental heroin overdose. Eddie Vedder is the only one out of those four that is still alive. I do want to just say pardon the pun before MD else makes the joke. <laughs> I know that's pretty horribly ill-timed. He is the only one of those four that is still with us and is still living, and he is the only one not from Washington. Hmm. And I don't know if that's ever been talked about or discussed that much. When you actually think about that and how much environment plays a part in how you view life, three out of those four guys ended up dead, while Eddie Vedder was the one that came from a... I'm going to double-check where it is he actually comes from, but must have been a bit of a cheerier place than Washington. So yeah, as I mentioned before, I think the reason that people do clamour for a return to grunge music is that they want to be able to feel that comfort again that they felt from listening to these bands because they knew that although they were rock stars, they had lived similar experiences. There's a lot of themes, as I mentioned there, about depression. A lot of people came from broken homes and stuff, and I think that's why there is a clamour for a return to that. That's my closing thoughts on what actually ties these albums together. As I said, from a musical point of view, I think they're worlds apart, but I think thematically they're a lot more closely tied together than they maybe appear on the surface. Jamie, have you got any thoughts to add before we get into what we're actually shelling out and what we're buying? I, I mean, I think you're right in terms of the lyrical themes are what tie these albums together because they don't sound the same. Mm -hmm. They don't even sound like they're in the same genre. Mm -hmm. Like I was saying about their grunge, because grunge is a movement, if you will. The point you make about the environment is quite interesting. I think there's a couple of different things that you need to look at from a sociological perspective. There's fame. Mm -hmm. There's their location. The thing that really strikes a chord with me here is that both of those albums sold more than 10 million in the US. Mm -hmm. They were released at almost exactly the same time, and they have got lyrically really similar themes. And they both sold a whole bunch, I am sure because they echoed the sentiment of disquiet in American youth at the time. Who were the people that were buying records? Yeah. They are singing about depression shit to people who are depressed about the same stuff. Yeah. It would be really interesting to see if there's been any studies done about the suicide rate at that time mm -hmm. in America, obviously because of things like Operation Desert Storm. Yeah. The oil and gas crisis had preceded it for a good few years. It would be really interesting to actually have a look at what was going on outside the American culture to see how that reflects. To get back to the music, it's interesting to see two records in the same category, but they're different. There are a lot more similarities than I was expecting between the two, but at the same time, there was this big gulf of differences between them, and it's, it's kind of left me with a lot more that I want answered. We're going to have a wee look at the socioeconomic standing of West Coast America between 1987 and 1992, mate. That's what we're going to do. That's our homework. I can't make it that day. Aye, cool. I'm sorry. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm washing my hair, aye. 
To point out to your listeners, I'm bald, so I'm not going to be washing any hair. <laughs> <laughs> Are you bald all over? Yes. <laughs> oh, man. Smashing, so... That's an image of my Aye. I mean, maybe he's like an Olympic swimmer. He does it for speed. <laughs> nah, mate, I've just got a mildly successful OnlyFans account. <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly going to subscribe. Oh, nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I don't know how we were talking about suiciding that within the last two minutes, and now we're talking about how clean Jamie shaves his nether regions. We got there anyway. With Aye. We got there. <laughs> Aye. We made it through. We've talked about what we liked and what we didn't like about both these albums, but now the ultimate question is here. If you could only purchase one of these albums on vinyl, paying full price, brand new vinyl, what are we going to go for? Craig, I'll go to you first. Okay. Well, this is where you see a bit of man sentimentality coming out. I would buy the Pearl Jam album for a couple of reasons. One, I've only ever owned it in one format, Mm -hmm. which was a burnt CD, a pirate copy CD that a friend of mine gave me, sadly, who's no longer with us. Mm -hmm. I have a real big emotional tie to this album because of the relationship I had with my friend and and because that was a physical thing when he gave me it. Mm -hmm. And I've still got it somewhere. Aside from all the other good reasons for buying the album, that's why I would get it. But I think even without that big, big tie to it, mm-hmm. it would still be the Pearl Jam thing for me. It's just mere what I'd probably listen to anyway. Yeah. No, that was in Rang with Nirvana and I like a lot of their stuff. But yeah, the Pearl Jam thing, for all that it's flawed and there's too much reverb and stuff, there's just an emotionality about the music on that album that I really connect with at a deeper level. It gets my vote. Can I just ask, Craig, I don't want this to be an overly emotional or bring up anything you're maybe not comfortable with, but do you still own that copy that your friend burned for you? Because to me, that would be the copy of the album that I would want to listen to. Yeah. To me, I think that's the one that would have that sentimentality. I do still have it, and I have the copy of Melancholy and Infinite Sadness that he gave me as well. Mm -hmm. We were only friends for two or three years, but we were also in a band together. Right, okay. You guys will know this, and anybody that's listening who's been involved in musical ensembles will know the bond that that engenders and the bond that that can create between people. Yeah. His and I, as much as we loved each other as people, we loved each other as musicians and as music guys. I gave him the Holy Bible by the Manix, and he gave me 10 by Pearl Jam, and we swapped things, and we critiqued them and talked about them on trains back and forward to air. That's a physical artifact of my history with him, with Anthony, mm-hmm. or Giddy as we called him. That's a deeply sentimental thing. And I'm like that anyway. I'm a nostalgic guy. I love physical things. Mm-hmm. I love being able to touch stuff and remember conversations and remember people. Mm-hmm. And I could buy any version of this album, you know, 25th, 30th anniversary editions on the vinyl yeah. and listen to it and it'd be great. But that's always going to be with me. That's an artifact of the history that I shared with him. So, no, I appreciate you asking that, man, because I think it's important. Yeah, I really, really like stories like that. Yeah. As far as people being able, we've all lost people, but if you've got something that you can physically have and hold that's a reminder of how much that person meant to you, then I think that's a pretty remarkable thing to have. And I'm glad that you kept a hold of it. Yeah. From there, then... I will just maybe pass over to Jamie then, because I'm getting a wee bit emotional listening to this story. So, Jamie, I'm sure you'll have some humour in in your statement, so go on. (laughs) Thanks for the pressure. (laughs) (laughs) When Craig was talking about it, I don't have a massive amount of sentimental attachments to either of these albums, but I will say, now, get your hankies ready, Daniel. No, because it's a sexy story. (laughs) It's quite nice. I'm going to pick, never mind, I don't really like the Pearl Jam album. I didn't like it before. I felt like it was a work obligation when I had to listen to it for the last couple of weeks because we were doing this podcast. Mm -hmm. It's all right. It's not my cup of tea. 
neither's never mind, but out of the two of them, I actually enjoyed never mind more. Get to the bit where we're talking about the sentimentality, the reaching for your hankies, but do you know what parts of Nevermind really remind me of? I have a feeling I know what you're going to say, but I want you to tell me. It's you, Daniel. I knew you were going to say that, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you'd mentioned about territorial pissings. Mate, I've been to the gigs that you played that song at. Mm-hmm. I've heard you play Smells Like Teen Spirit on the guitar more times than I've heard Kurt Cobain play it. Aye. <laughs> When I was listening to it, I was like, oh, I, I remember this. I remember this track. I remember this guitar intro. Daniel, you and I have known each other for a long time. 11 years or something now. For those of you who don't know Daniel and I's history, that I helped bring Daniel up. I didn't actually. <laughs> I was there when Daniel was like a wee guy with a guitar that was the same size as him. And he was a sweet angry punk guy. You were talking about territorial pissings and playing that song to really piss people off. Mm-hmm. I remember you saying that for the first time when you were playing in bands. Aye. And that album really reminds me of what you used to be like and how that's had an impact on you as a person, you know, as an adult. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of you and that made me feel dead happy because we've known each other for a long time and both of us have been through some really hard shit in that time mm-hmm. and the three is not just me and you Daniel me you and Craig we've all played music together and Craig you're absolutely right there's an irreplaceable bond that comes as part of playing music with people that you like and playing music that you like that's true and never mind reminded me of you Daniel and that made me feel dead good because we've been through a lot <laughs> we keep in touch and you're really cool you had a really big impact in my life and this album really reminded me of you so that's the sentimental reasons but also, it's a better record, it sounds good, and it's probably cheaper because they sell 30 million copies yet, so great. <laughs> Smashing will, Jamie, that means the absolute world to me, and it's really, really nice to hear you say that, especially considering the past year and what not just us three, but the full world has been through. I'm really excited to see the two of you in person again, and I don't know, who knows, maybe we can get a jam session and play Nevermind in full. I mean, there's three of us and there was three of them, so... <laughs> <laughs> That's it, aye. Cool, so yeah, final deciding vote then comes from me, it looks like. So I'll keep it short and simple. Jamie, I'm going for Nevermind as well, which will make that the winner of this episode of the podcast. Just a quick couple of reasons as to why Nevermind is my personal favourite of the two. For one, I already own 10 on CD, so I think that's good enough. I don't feel the need to get it on vinyl because, as I say, there were a couple of tracks in there that I wasn't mad on. So if I've got a CD, I can just skip them. Whereas I far prefer Nevermind as a whole to listen to start to finish. And then I think part of that also comes back to what Craig was mentioning about Smells Like Teen Spirit earlier, about it being one of, if not the strongest opening tracks there's ever been on an album. Now, I don't own Nevermind on vinyl, but somebody, somebody that I used to be pals with did. And they had a wee turntable in their bedroom. And sometimes we'd go around and just like hang about in that with like a, a group of us. And whenever Nevermind was put on, it was great because it was just that feeling of dropping the needle onto the record and hearing those first four chords, the smells like Teen Spirit comes in, like there's absolutely nothing like it. So it does take me back to that time that you mentioned there, Jamie, when I was a young, angry punk kid who loved Nirvana and the Ramones and Green Day and everything along those lines. I just think I've got more of a personal connection with Nevermind, and also I think overall it's probably a more iconic album and one that's more recognised by its kind of cover art and stuff, and therefore something that I would kind of want to parade in my own vinyl collection. So I'd say that's been a a pretty good two-part episode that we've done there again. So does anyone have anything to add before we wrap up? Yes. 
Oh, both of you. I've got a suggestion for a future episode. Right, okay. That we come back here in maybe a year's time mm-hmm. and do both of these bands MTV Unplugged albums. Oh, it's something that came to me in my head and I think it would be a good counterpoint in maybe a year's time to come back and look at these two bands again head to head and look at their unplugged sets and see what we think it's a good shout if we're not going to be discussing that for a year's time I'm going to say something that's been considered quite controversial and if we're talking about those two then we can talk about those two but the Alice in Chains Unplugged is my personal favourite MTV Unplugged set and it definitely doesn't get the love that the other two do that's true actually for anybody listening to this please go and check out Alice in Chains Unplugged it's on Spotify and there's plenty of videos of it on YouTube as well but yeah sorry Jamie I believe you had something to add as well just nice and brief how good is the album cover for Nevermind pretty good eh? oh it's amazing it's so iconic I think it encapsulates a lot of the yeah. stuff we were talking about with the sentiment of excess in America mm-hmm. And I loved how hard that they had to fight for the uncensored version of that being released. And I really liked the thing that Kurt Cobain had said to Geffen Records because they wanted to put a sticker mm-hmm. over the wee babies bits saying, you know, or like, I don't know what kind of sticker but it would say that, but Kurt Cobain said, the only way that I will agree to this is if it says on the sticker, if you are offended by this, you are a closet paedophile. <laughs> that was a really sensible thing. I know it was flagrant and inflammatory, but that was a really mm-hmm. sensible thing to say because, like, it's just a picture. Aye. Aye. Do you know what I mean? And, like, and, and it was a perfect artistic statement to sum up quite a lot of the stuff about the album. And I think, like, there was loads of controversy at the time, but actually looking back at it, you're like, man, that album cover's rad as fuck. And the guy that was, in, that was in the picture, it makes me feel weird that he's younger than me, but the guy, the wee baby that was in that picture, he regularly does um like photos of it again, like as he's getting older and stuff like that. Yeah, which is really it's really cool. It's really sweet, and I think it's just that it's a great, it's a an iconic album cover um, for an iconic album that sell a shit ton of albums. I think he's also appeared on a bunch of other random album covers because people has... just want the wee boy. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> um, despite right. the fact he's totally like, ah, uh, well, not me because I'm I'm too young, but like. Either he used to could be like, aye, that was me. I was the wee button. You know what I mean? He's a baby. Babies are quite nondescript. <laughs> uh, so I always thought that was quite funny. So there's a few stories out there of people saying, like, oh, what my claim to fame is that I was the baby on the, the Nevermind <laughs> album. And it's like a big 43 year old guy. You're like, nah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, you'd have been 15 when that came out. <laughs> Hilarious. Aye. Brilliant artwork. I'm an artwork guy. It just encapsulates a time and a place mm. is really reflective of the album's music it's one of the few albums I listen to and it's almost like I hear the colours I know a lot of people that do that a lot more but I hear the colours of that album when I'm listening to it mm-hmm. so it must have been good aye <laughs> must have been aye it was on the money yep cool well unless anybody's got anything else to add I'd say that wraps us up quite nicely so thank you very much everybody for listening to this once again our winner for this episode is Nirvana's Nevermind Please go and listen to both these albums if you haven't already. They're both very good. But clearly, based on our freeze opinions, never mind is the winner. All right, so thanks very much, guys. Bye. Bye. Cheers, guys.